ओम ज्ञान तुमंदन शलकाय चक्षुर्मितुरवे नम वंदेहम श्रीगुरुश्रीदूतपरकमल श्रीगुरून वैष्णव श्रीरूपम सागृजात सहगुनाघुनाथन्वितं सजीव साद्वैत साबदूत परिजना सहित कृष्ण चैतन्यदेव श्रीराधाकृष्णपादन सहगुना ललिता श्री विशाखन्वित ಪಂಚಕಲ್ಪತರುಭ್ಯಶ್ಚಾಕೃಪಾಸಿಂಧುಭ್ಯೇವಚ್ಚಪತಿತಾನಂಪಾವನಿಭ್ಯಷ್
dispensation, divine dispensation of Lord Krishna in the form of Sri Guru. So it's awkward. What can you say? What can you? How can you say enough? How can you do justice to the uh, occasion that we commemorate today? It's the appearance day of the Guru. We call it Vyasa Puja, the worship of Vyas, because he represents Vyas, which uh, means he represents the scripture, theoretically and practically, by example. But more than the particular day of the Guru's appearance in the world, which is what we're gathered here to uh, commemorate, what is important is the significance of the appearance of Guru in our life. So, on this day, we're called to remember that, that much more. But it's something that we should come to remember every day, and, and that remembrance should translate out into the practical activity that demonstrates that we're mindful of the significance of that. It's mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita, Pramanda Brahmite Kon Bhagyavanji Guru Krishna Prashade Bhai Bhakti Latabij. That to get the seed of bhakti, which is Shraddha, Shraddha means faith, and there's a difference between faith and belief. Belief is in the realm of the intellect, and faith is in the realm of the soul itself. So, Shraddha means a kind of a dawning of a sense, a realization that simply by taking shelter of Krishna I can achieve all perfection in life. Furthermore, it's a sense of the significance of revelation that unless God wants me to know Him, I cannot know. So for comprehensive knowledge I'm dependent upon revelation. I'm dependent upon God exercising of his own volition himself in relation to, to me. And there are two prominent manifestations of that revelation in our lives. One is the scriptural canon, the body of sacred scripture. And the other is Sri Guru. Sridharmarsh liked to speak of them as the passive and active agents of divinity, respectively. The scripture is a passive agent, and the sadhu, the guru, is an active agent. We can read the scripture, but the scripture can't ask us, so did you understand that? But the guru can say, so did you understand, what did you understand? And then actively reveal the true significance of the statement in the scripture. So they go together. There's a marriage, a relationship between Guru and Shastra. Shastra is said to be like the mother of the disciple and Guru like the father. And these two don't get divorced. They stick together and in a sense that the whatever the Guru speaks is represented in the Shastra and he can demonstrate that. So Shraddha means this kind of faith in revelation that there's a means for knowing that is beyond any exertion in and of itself from my side be it physical mental or intellectual comprehensive knowing that is requires that God exercise himself in relation to me and then in relation to that I will employ my mind, my intelligence, my senses fully in understanding and applying the significance of that. So while it is faith and not just a belief but a sense, an insight, which uh, involves a clearing of, of misconception that I might, my prospect might lie in something that I can do by physical prowess by making a physical arrangement by some mental prowess or intellectual prowess. It's a kind of a helplessness 
acknowledging a helplessness that at the same time feels very comforting. I'm fond of saying that when I was younger and I would meet people, that I would often receive a response to my advocacy of what I was doing, what I was about, something like, well, that's good that you joined a group or a religious sect, that you need a guru. That's fine for you if you need that. But I don't need it. In other words, if you need that crutch to stand on, I'm not going to hold it against you. But I don't need the crutch. And I used to respond to that, that you're right about that to an extent. I do need that help. But the difference between you and me is not that you don't need the help, but that you haven't acknowledged it yet. That's all. Shridharmarsh gave a nice poetic example that the eye cannot see the mind unless the mind minds it, pays attention to it. As much as the mind may seem more conscious and alive than the physical senses, and the physical senses are dependent upon them for their capacity to perceive and thereby know. Similarly, we are dependent upon God for knowing comprehensively. We may know something here or there. We may figure out something about life, but comprehensive knowing, that is another thing. That requires revelation. So Shraddha is the, is the, the sense of this, the truth of this dawning within us which is an acknowledgement, as I say, of our weakness and may be expressed tearfully, crying, pleading, which then is a sign of our strength. It's a sign of one's strength to take help from others in areas that you are lacking. And to avoid that in the name of being strong, that is the greatest weakness. I remember our contractor, Randy, used to say, real men don't ask directions. <laughs> I differed with him on that. They figure it out themselves, in other words. That was his idea about everything. But uh, I found that to be the antithesis of the idea of Krishna consciousness, the descending path. And, of course, we do have to give up this Purusha Bhav, this sense of being the Purusha, the enjoyer, the controller, accept our position as Prakriti. And, of course, as we know, in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, then we are Prakriti, Parapakriti. We are a kind of energy rather than the energetic, but nonetheless superior to, to matter, which is another energy of the Lord. But our superiority also comes into play when we fully embrace our position as subordinate to Krishna because when it's fully embraced and put into practice, then Krishna himself becomes conquered by that. So the strength in acknowledging our weakness. Shraddha is something like that. This is said to be the formal beginning of bhakti. And that Shraddha manifests in relation to the scripture and Guru, the ambassador of God and the uh, agent of the, of the scripture and so forth. So, when that appears in our life, that is the real formal beginning of Bhakti. There's an informal beginning. It involves the unseen, so to speak, which brings us to that platform of Shraddha. Agyata Sukriti, Gyata Sukriti. Just like if you plant a seed in the ground, like here now spring is coming and we're going to be planting, so for a while we won't see anything. But something is going on. That seed is germinating, roots are going down. And one day we'll walk and say, oh, see, it's, it's begun when the plant comes above the ground. So that's analogous to Shraddha. But there's something going on unseen before that. Agyata Sukriti, without any 
knowledge of it, one comes in touch with bhakti and the Vaishnava and renders some service, doesn't understand the significance or even perhaps that he or she rendered any service. That begins then to accumulate. When that happens to us, we get other opportunities, other opportunities for that, and accumulates to a point where with some understanding we render service to Krishna. We may think, this is a nice path, there's other paths, I'll go to the temple today. But our sense that what's going on at the temple or what's going on in that book that, well, I'll read that book today. That's also a good book. I read the Tao Te Ching, I, I read the uh, Lotus Sutra, oh, no, Bhagavad Gita, I'll read that too, that's good. There's the, this edition and that edition, and there's the Gaudi edition, now that's interesting too, and it has some merit. So, with some knowledge and appreciation of what it's about, we participate. But the sense that it is what it is has not yet dawned. When that dawns, that we call Shraddha, and that will manifest in relation to a particular sadhu who embodies that. And there we found our guru. This is the appearance then of guru. So this is really what we're celebrating. And it should be remembered every day. But on this day, in particular, we remember it. And it should propel us into so many more days of the same. So, while many nice devotees have written something, expressing their sentiments and realizations and so forth, Others have said things and called me and and unconsciously or consciously thought about it, but haven't written anything. While all this is going on, and I was feeling this going on, of course, for some time, you were orchestrating behind the scenes website and offerings and so forth. So uh, I thought to write something myself. And I did that, and that is published on the, the site for your reading. And I want to discuss that short article with you today. It's a commentary, short commentary on the verse of Vishwanachakvati Thakur in his Guru Vastakam. Sakshad haritena samastha shastre ruktastata bhavyate vasadvi kintu pravoya priyavatasya vande guru sitcharanaravindam Those of you who were with us at the Gita Darshan this weekend past, heard something about what I'm going to say from this commentary on this verse that I've written, because in relation to a question that came up, it kind of, some of my thoughts and insights about this came out in an inspired way. So, at the risk of being repetitive, for those of you who heard that, and those of you who will hear that on the CD, and perhaps hear this on the CD as well, I'm going to uh, discuss it at some greater length. Repetition is not always a fault. In Western literature, it is considered to be a fault, but in uh, actually in the scripture, it's not so to the same extent because the nature of the subject is such that repetition is often required for emphasis on the point, the points being as profound as they are. And what could be more profound than this, a discussion about the significance of Sri Guru, and what Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur has, has said in one of his eight stanzas that we sing every morning. Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur is told that whoever sings these stanzas, Sri Guru Vastakam, during the early morning hours, the Brahma Muhurta, this time, hour and a half before sunrise, two Muhurtas within that period before sunrise, which is a very auspicious time, then um, they will attain the direct darshan of the Lord in Vrindavan. He's given that kind of benediction. So, worth rising in the morning and, and singing that song. Among this, um, the wonderful stanzas there that he has written, the seventh of them begins in this way, Sakshadharitvena. So, as I mentioned the other night, when Prabhupada in New York was beginning his mission there and had a small group of students attending his lectures. At a certain point, he made an announcement that tomorrow there will be initiations. 
when I had the good fortune of coming into the Association of Srila Sridhar Marjan under his guidance, and I asked him what service I could do, he said, you know everything, Swami Maharaj has taught you everything, you should go and preach, do something, start something. And I'll be in the background, Radhakovinda Siji is here, my moth is here, and so forth, and in the background to energize, assist in some way, as need be. And there were a number of my godbrothers who encouraged similarly, and some of them even with more specific language, with regard to starting something and obviously the implication being bringing in new people and, and initiating them. And he said that in the beginning you have to get something started. Nothing risk, nothing gained. You have to collect up some people and you may give some initiations and all of them may not stay. But they will help to make it apparent physically that something's going on here. When Bhaktivilas Tirtha Maharaj, previously known as Kunjababa, the Kunjubi Haridas, very prominent disciple of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, heard him speaking in Mayapur. Saraswati Thakur was not a real manager and organizer type of person, but an inspired thinker and a visionary. And when he heard him speaking, he could understand the significance of what he was saying, how he was envisioning the reformation of Gaudiya Vaishnavism and its wide dissemination, as Thakur Bhaktivinoda had wanted and so forth. Well, Kunju Bihari Das, Bhaktivilas Tirtamarsh, he knew how to organize, how to manage. So he thought, this thing has to be organized. What he's talking about, just sitting in the jungle, practically in Navadweep, pounding his fist sometimes as he spoke emphatically with such emotion and compassion, really. His inner soft heart of compassion showed an outer disdain for anything short of Gaudiya Vaishnavism that people might get in pursuit of the highest truth. He didn't want anyone to be shortchanged. His face would become flushed sometimes. Sridhar said later on that when Guru Maharaj would speak like that, his face would become flushed. And some of the disciples thought, oh, Gurudev is getting angry. Not good. But I thought, now I know the meaning of lotus face. When I saw his face would become flushed and tinged, I could understand that it was due to the soft heart inside of compassion for people and concern that he was becoming so adamant it wasn't any ordinary kind of anger. Do we think that Hanuman should be faulted for his anger in Sri Lanka at Ravan? So there's uh, maybe kind of Vaishnav anger. It means that we shouldn't lose our temper, but we should use our temper and everything else in Krishna's service. Nibandha Krishna Samande Yuktavairagimuchate. Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur had a particular vision of this verse of Rupa Goswami that was very uh, dynamic, and we are fortunate for that because on account of that, we have some standing here. So, Bhaktivilas Tirtumarsh was actually the manager of all of Godiamat and its, its branches, and he had that kind of a vision to organize the inspired insights and reality of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. So to get something going, to erect a building, and, uh, publish a book, and, and so forth. People in general need to see that something on the physical level or on the apparent intellectual level, each of these things, a temple or a book, is on the spiritual level actually, but it can be perceived to some extent. Uh, on the physical level, we have the temple we can go to, an intellectual level, a book we can read, and we are attached to our physical sense of self and intellectual sense of self. So when the Absolute manifests relative to these dimensions of our material being, then we think something's happening here. We get involved. So sometimes we make the big rituals and the big utsav festival and so forth. And It's not that something's not going on otherwise without that, but that will 
call the attention of people in general. So to, to get something going. So Shudra Maharaj told, okay, to get something going. Some people come, they may stay, they may not take some chance like that. And so Prabhupada, one day he announced, so tomorrow there will be initiations. He needed to get something going. And not everybody stayed <laughs> who came forward the next day for initiations. That doesn't mean it wasn't appropriate. They weren't benefited. No. That will come to benefit them at some time in the future, if they couldn't take advantage of it fully at that time. But he had a fledgling group, and he was holding discussions, and people were becoming interested, and he felt that it had reached a certain pitch that this, what was going on, the chemistry between himself and the students should be acknowledged and formalized, initiation should take place, and then he would give, some, the, after the initiation, then comes Bhajanakriya, it means there are certain guidelines. Now you have to do like this, do like this, and so forth. So I guess everybody in the group had some sense that, well, this was like taking it to another level of commitment, involvement. And so someone questioned Prabhupada that what is the significance of that? And Prabhupada said, it means that we accept the Guru as good as God. And then he got up and walked out. And so everyone was uh, shocked, and some people were shocked <laughs> too much. And they said, that's not for me. But some were not intimidated by that, but charmed more by it, and came forward and found out through getting initiated and so forth more of what that really is all about. It sounds almost like something we preach against. That uh, there's a difference between God and the and the soul, God and the Vaishnav, God and the Guru. So the specific, precise language of Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur that Prabhupada, of course, was drawing upon when he gave that reply as to the significance of initiation. We find here, sakshadharitvena. So, haritvena, it means of the quality of God. So, even though it says the Guru is directly God, technically it says more he's directly the, of the quality of God. So, even in the language itself, there's some subtle distinction. And, of course, as the verse goes on, as we'll see, the distinction develops further as well. But not to... Uh, diminish the sense in which the Guru is actually directly God manifesting in our life. He's not God, but through the persona of the Guru, God is fully manifesting in our life. God is everywhere, but he's particularly there for us in the form of the Guru, his speech, his example, and so forth. Locally, he's come in that way. And to make that connection, we're very fortunate. I quoted the verse earlier, Brahmanda Brahmite Kon Bhagavan Guru Krishna Prasadi Pai Bhakti Lata Beach. It says to get this bija of bhakti that is Shraddha, we talked about earlier. Get this bija of Shraddha. For that to manifest, oh, one wanders throughout the whole universe through different species of life for a long time. And in getting human form of life, he becomes fortunate, and in that life, he begins to, or she begins to look for God as a result of the Sukriti, and then God looks for you. And it does so in the form of Sri Guru. So it is said there in Chaitanya Charitamrita that after wandering, he becomes fortunate while looking for God, that God takes notice. Oh, in a general way, you're looking for me. You really do want me. Well, here I send an agent by which you can actually find me. So the aspirant is looking for God. God sends him to his devotee, and the devotee sends him to, takes him to God. Specifically, step by step. Now you can go systematically. That is the idea. Making this connection, Bhagyavan, the word is used, means lucky, fortunate. Like a turtle in a lake that's frozen over. You know, turtles can go down for a long time, but they do have to come up for air. So if having gone down, the lake freezes over on top, that's a great misfortune. But somewhere in the whole lake, there's probably a hole in the ice. So the turtle's finding that hole to get the, that air, oxygen. That is sometimes used as an example, how fortunate we are to make this kind of connection. So we should understand it for what it is. So Prabhupada cited this. And 
told them that it means to accept the Guru as good as God. Some came forward and they became initiated and the mission took more shape. So many guidelines, rules and regulations were given out that they should follow and so forth. So Sakshad Haritvena. Haritvena means, he is, as I say, of the quality of God. So what is the quality of God? The quality of God is, in a word, Nirguna, without qualities. Now, that doesn't sound like Vaishnavism, does it? <laughs> but still, now, these statements are made in the Shruti. God is without form, Nirakar, without name, Nirgun, without qualities. In Srimad Bhagavatam, we find a description of Gajendra. Gajendra was an elephant, and he, as elephants do, he went into the river to bathe, but he got attacked by a crocodile. Crocodile, being in his own element in the water, had an advantage over the elephant. And seeing his situation to be hopeless, he prayed to Vishnu. So apparently, from the previous life, this particular elephant, Gajendra, had been a bhakta. Somehow he got into the situation of being an elephant. It may happen. And attacked by a crocodile, and the circumstances brought out his past. And he was able to become conscious. And there are prayers of Gajendra there in, in Bhagavatam. And in those prayers he prays for Vishnu to appear. And he glorifies him as he who is nirgun, nirakar, and all these types of words are used was without quality, without name, without form. And what happened was Vishnu appeared. And Jiva Goswami makes the astute observation that he's asking for the nirgun, he's asking for the nirakar and so forth, and Vishnu appeared. Therefore we can understand that that Vishnu is nirgun, Vishnu is nirakar, and to say without quality, without form, means without material form and without material qualities. I've given an example before. If you're, a, if you're a young man in this country or a young lady and you become a vegetarian and you move away from home and you come home one day and your mother says, oh, there's a lot of food in the refrigerator, just take what you want and you open it up and it's not a vegetarian uh, diet, you might say, there's no food in the refrigerator. She say, what are you talking about? I just filled it up. One of my disciples went home once and fixed himself a, a submarine sandwich with avocado and cheese and tomato and lettuce and sprouts and so forth. His father came in and said, aren't you going to put anything on it? <laughs> so, it's like in northern India, if you don't eat chapatis, then you haven't eaten. South India, you haven't eaten rice, you haven't eaten. In this country, you haven't eaten meat. People think you haven't eaten. So, for one who knows the spiritual nature of the Lord's form, name, and so forth, knows it's nothing like material form, nothing like the material name. That name of Krishna is eternal. It's non-different than him. It's eternally liberated. He knows all these things. And similarly with the form of the Lord, he knows. is worshipable, venerable, they appear to the eye similar, or the depiction in art. It may appear similar to some material form, but no, it's entirely different. So much so that it's, it can be called nirakar. And who are we speaking to? Amongst the people in the world of forms and names. So, the Lord is of the quality of what? Nirgun. It means not of any... Material qualities. What are the material qualities? Satpagun, Rajagun, Tamagun. So there's a plane of experience above the three modes of nature. And this is the plane of God consciousness. Krishna, Vishnu, God is of this quality. Nirguna. So Sakshadharitena. So Guru must be of this quality. Not under the bound by the guna. Gunas mean like rope. So bound by the material modes of nature and to untie the ropes the gunas influence on others so this is the idea 
end, just as the form of the Lord, the pastimes of the Lord, name of the Lord, and so forth, may be misconstrued to be mundane. We may see the deity and think, oh, it's just they're worshiping a statue in there, an idol. The devotees are looking with eyes of love, saying, is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is here. Nitananda Prabhu is here. Similarly, we are taught in the Puranas that Guru Avagya, Avagya means uh, the order, really, means we shouldn't disobey the order of the Guru. This is an offense to the holy name. And it also means that we shouldn't think of the Guru as an ordinary person. So just as we have to see the deity with a philosophical eye, so we'll have to see the Guru with a philosophical eye. Sometimes we have to stress also what the Guru says, because he does things just like us. If we don't temper that with what he says, then we'll think, oh, just like me. Why should I listen to him? <laughs> they said a man is known when he speaks. When he speaks, he creates some distance, in a sense, but that distance brings us nearer to our real self. It distances us from our own material nature and a material conception of the agent of God, and this brings us closer to our own nature, possibility of realizing it. So, Sakshadharitvena, of the quality of Krishna. Nirguna. Another way to think about this is that he's of the quality of Hari. So, Hari, what does Hari mean? Hari is a name for God, of course, and it means he who takes away. So, Guru is one who takes away our ignorance. And how does he do so? By explaining the Shastra. Therefore, Smatpani Shrotriyam Brahmanishtam. Tadvigyanartam Sadguru Mevabhigatchet Samatpani Shrotriyam Brahmanishtam Shruti Devi, she says that Tadvigyanartam if you want comprehensive knowledge Tadvigyanartam Samatpani Shrotriyam Brahmanishtam Tadvigyanartam Sadguru Mevabhigatchet We must approach a guru if we want comprehensive knowledge, Shruti Devi says, the Upanishads, we must approach the Guru. And then she says that Shrotriyam Brahmanishtam. She reveals his nature. One of the things she says is Shrotriyam. What does Shrotriyam mean? Shrotriyam means he has heard sufficiently, completely, comprehensively from Scripture. So in order to teach, one has to have been a student himself. Especially when what we're teaching is how to be a student. In Sridhar Marsh's language, we are all students forever. So <laughs> this is what we're teaching. You have to have a guru. You have to learn the truth from him. And what is the truth? That we're all servants, guru included then it becomes less foreboding. If the Guru is teaching, I'm God, I'm the enjoyer, everything should be given to me. It should cause us a little concern. <laughs> but if he's teaching, I can teach you how to be a servant. And we are convinced that because we can see he is a good servant. And it's a little more palatable, isn't it? Of course, if we want to be the enjoyer, then we may think, yes, I have a Guru. He's the enjoyer. He will teach me how to be the supreme enjoyer then I won't need him anymore. Prabhupada once was bathing in the Ganga during the Gorpurnim festivities in Mayapur. And when he came out of the Ganga, one of his disciples reached his hand to pull him out. And he pulled him out and Prabhupada got on the banks of the Ganga and then he pulled his hand away like that. And that disciple was shocked and Prabhupada said, this is my Abad. <laughs> They take help from the Guru, only to become the Guru, and reject the Guru, ultimately. It's a philosophy in a sense, I guess he was saying, that rejects the Guru in the sense that the relationship between the Guru and the disciple at some point dissolves. Both are Brahman. There's no more service, no more gratitude, expression of love, interaction. There's no one to interact with. 
if there is love, it's some kind of abstract idea of, of love. So if we want comprehensive knowledge, tadviganartam sagurum eva bhikachchet. We must approach a guru, and a guru is one who is heard, who is a good student. I was once paid a wonderful compliment by Sridhar Maharaj, sitting in his company, he said, Tripurari Maharaj, he is a bona fide student. And one of the senior most disciples of Sridhar Maharaj, who had been with him for 30, 40 years, turned to me and his eyes opened very wide, Harichan and Prabhu said, oh, what Guru Maharaj said, such a compliment. So this is our ideal, to be a bona fide student. Bona fide student can teach. We're all teachers, all students forever, on some level. So he has to have heard, has to have heard comprehensively from the scripture, because he's awakened faith in the scripture and the descending nature of comprehensive knowledge. Therefore, he sits with the disciple and then he, then he cites the scripture to eradicate the doubts and the disciple asks questions. This is the traditional context. He asks questions and exhaustively the guru answers, eradicates the doubts, and then it's clear that we should proceed along these lines. Rupa Goswami has said in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Ado Guru Ashraya. The beginning is, in one sense we say the beginning is faith, but he has also said the beginning is to take shelter of the Guru. And then what does he say? Having taken shelter of the Guru, we should hear from him. Shiksha Dikshadi. So we take shelter of the Guru, we get instructions. After getting so many instructions, then the obvious implication is, as my doubts are cleared, my wealth lies here. <laughs> I repose myself here and then in the diksha. So diksha follows the shiksha. Shiddharmarsh once said that the preacher is going and giving shiksha everywhere. And by his shiksha, he's capturing people. And having been captured by that shiksha, then they capture him by insisting, we must get our diksha from you. This way he becomes captured. He captures them, then they capture him. And the bond is made. So guru has to be learned. One of the meanings of guru is heavy. One of my god brothers once told me that guru means heavy. So far I'm eating more ghee nowadays. <laughs> but the meaning is not like that. The meaning is heavy with knowledge. He's not going to blow in the wind of some new idea or some argument. His faith is firm and fixed. It's well-reasoned. It's supported by scripture. Our faith in the beginning is tender. And when we then take that faith and put it in the fire of service and hearing and studying the scripture, then it becomes stronger. Like if you take iron and put it in the fire, pull it out, it becomes harder. So, when we apply our intelligence in relation to our faith, then if we do it properly under good guidance by studying the scripture, it becomes stronger. We have to be careful in that regard because intelligence can also take us out the door. Because what we're studying, ourself, the nature of ourself, the nature of God, these two things are above intellect. So therefore, they do not have to answer to intellect. It's not their business to satisfy the intellect. Intellect is subordinate to the soul, subordinate to God. If they have to answer in every way to intellect, then that puts intellect in a superior position. So sometimes they don't. So without faith, without experience, that that faith is really all about. In the company of sadhus, advanced devotees, and our guru and so forth, when we try to exercise our intellect in relation to our faith, in the name of strengthening it, it can also uproot it if we insist that every argument is watertight. It's not. There's no watertight logic for the existence of God. If there was, all logical and reasonable people would be godly. No, there's great potential for abusing reasoning power. And that's what we call it, atheism. <laughs> so, 
Guru is well versed in the scripture, recites the scripture, explains the scripture, removes our doubts, clears our path for going forward. His knowledge of scripture is, is rather extensive and he understands the logic of scripture. This, in one sense, is a description of the uh, Uttam Bhagwat. The beginning, the Kanishta, the neophyte has got tender faith and doesn't really know the scripture. The intermediate devotee, his faith is firm, but his scriptural knowledge may be lacking. But he doesn't deviate, even if he hears an argument that he can't answer. And the most qualified, then, has is well-versed in the scripture and reasoning and has firm faith. But his being well-versed in scripture and reasoning is based on his firm faith. It comes to support that firm faith, that experience. It enables him to explain the scripture in dynamic ways, in terms of so many different applications and unique circumstances and so forth. It's not just the reciting of the scripture. He can explain it in a dynamic way. Because why? His faith and experience is causing his intellect and reasoning to work in service to that his taste, his experience. So he has logic and reasoning based on that firm faith. Faith is the main thing. In Rupa Goswami's description of the different levels of eligibility for bhakti, the underlying theme, the thread that goes through all three of them and ties them together and makes all three of them devotees is faith. Weak faith, intermediate faith, deep faith. Whatever else is described in those verses is auxiliary. Now, at the same time, Rupa Goswami's description of three types of levels of eligibility are precisely that. They are a description of three levels of eligibility for bhakti. In Jaiva Dharma, we find Brajanath and Bijay Kumar. They were very learned in scriptural knowledge. They had studied Bhagavatam, so many texts and so forth. So they were, as a result of that, more eligible to take advantage of the path of bhakti, and we see that they made progress so quickly. So in one sense, Rupa Goswami is describing not the siddhas, not the Mahabhagavata, but the Kanishta Adhikari, who has the highest level of eligibility for bhakti. Now, sometimes it may also be used as first to describe the highest level of devotees, but in the context in which it appears, Rupa Goswami, and in Chaitanya Charitamrita, where it's mentioned by Krishna Skabharaj Goswami, it appears in relation to eligibility for treading the path of bhakti. But one thing is to tread the path as a sadhaka, another thing is sadhya, to have attained the path. So those who have attained the path, Bhagavatam speaks about them as well. In the 11th canto of Bhagavatam, we find a description of three types of Bhagavatas, three types of devotees on the path, the beginning, the intermediate, and the superlative. So there we find, we find a better explanation of that faith. If the verse of Rupa Goswami describing the Uttam Adhikari is to be applied in such a way as to be an explanation of the highest devotee, rather than merely who's most eligible for advancing in bhakti, then we'll have to understand the word faith in there, in terms of what Srimad Bhagavatam says about the highest devotee. Faith meaning experience in the land beyond doubt. Srimad Bhagavatam describes the Uttamadikari how? Esha Bhagavatottama. Who is the topmost devotee? Who is seeing Krishna everywhere, like gopis. They saw Krishna everywhere, in everything. They saw everything in relation to Krishna very well qualified in the mystic sense, full of mystical qualifications. Solve the mystery of life, seeing everything in relation to Krishna. Vishwanath Chakvati Thakur gave an example in his explanation of that Bhagavatam verse. What did he say? He said, the example is Mother Jasoda, because she looked into Krishna's mouth and she saw the whole universe. So she saw everything in Krishna, and Krishna in everything. Bhagavatam is speaking of a very qualified person, a very highly qualified person spiritually, not just a learned person, not just who has theoretical knowledge and whose brain and mental faculty, intellectual faculty is supple, but one whose 
mental constructs have melted and he's been able to see the world for what it is. To see Krishna. This is Akshadhuritvena. Samastha Shastra, Ruktastata Bhavrate Bhusadbi. All the scriptures say Guru is Sakshadhari Tvena, and therefore all the sadhus accept it. But as we speak of the mystical qualifications of the Guru, Shruti Devi told us what? Shrutriyam? She said, Tadvigyanatam, Saguru Mevabhigatchet. If you want to have comprehensive knowledge, you must approach your Guru. He doesn't just leave us in the dark there, she says. And she tells us a number of things here. Samatpani Shrotriyam Brahmanishtam. Samatpani means to bring ingredients for the yagya, like to bring firewood for the fire. In this statement, Shruti Devi is describing the disciple. It's like Krishna. Krishna was initiated by Sandipani Muni. And one day, then he sent Krishna and Sudama into the forest to collect firewood. And they, for some reason, they were unsuccessful entirely in fulfilling their mission by the time the sun went down. So Krishna insisted we stay here till we uh, are successful. And his guru became very concerned as the sun went down. He hadn't returned, he hadn't returned. Went out looking for them. So as a disciple Krishna was showing, we should be so prepared to do the necessary. Putting ourselves at the Guru's disposal. As much as we resist, we resist our progress. Simple as that. The more we put ourselves at the disposal of Guru, then more we can make progress. We should allow ourselves to be exploited for the purpose of God. This is a good thing. So Samatpani, Shrotriyam, then we hear, she doesn't just say, Shruti Devi, oh, you get comprehensive knowledge, you need a guru. She says, oh, and this is how he should be approached, and this is what he's like, Shrotriyam, and what is the next one? Brahmanishtam. So he's hard, means he has knowledge, theoretical knowledge, and theoretical knowledge is required for preaching, for eradicating doubts and so forth, by speaking the language of of logic and citing the Shastra and so forth, but more so Brahmanishtam, that actually has some spiritual standing in the Nirgun. This is required. And how deep in the Nirgun, this verse of Bhagavatam that describes Uttam Bhagavat, who can see Krishna, like Mother Jashoda, <laughs> Vishwana Chakvritakura has said, also so qualified. Very deep in Brahmanishtam. Situated means in Brahman, very deeply there, deep within the Nirgun, we find Krishna's Leela manifesting. So who has some access to that realm, that means Bhavbhakti. And when we, as we move in this direction, then we come to what? The second half of Vishwana Chakuritakur's stanza, Kintu Prabhu Yapriyeva Tasya. Prabhupada said, the meaning of initiation is we accept the Guru as good as God. So as I said the other night, what could be more than that? Oh my God! Some people walked out when they heard that. But there's a progression here in Vishwana Chakritakura's verse. So there's something more than that. A more developed understanding. A higher understanding. That doesn't mean we leave the lower understanding. But the lower understanding is also included in the higher understanding. It's refined, qualified further of the quality of Hari. He can take away ignorance, therefore he must be Shrotriyam, well-versed in the scripture. He must be Brahmanishtam, to have spiritual standing, real spiritual standing, like Hari, Nirgun. And in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, this is Gaudiya Vaishnav, Vishnu uh, Chakritakura is describing Gaudiya Vaishnav Guru, and very deep in that. So what does it mean, very deep in that? Kintu So Vishwana Chakritakur says, oh, he's very dear to Krishna. So he's of the quality of Hari directly. He's directly Hari. However, he says, he's also dear to Hari. So we find this throughout Gaudiya Vaishnavism. It's one thing and it's another thing. <laughs> and it's at the same time. Atyanta Veda Veda. 
So what he's saying is that, however, he's dear to Hari. So what does it mean to be dear to Hari? In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says what? Those who preach the message of Bhagavad Gita to my devotees, they are most dear to me. Never will there be anyone in this world more dear to me. So in this world, who is dear to Krishna, Krishna is saying, will appear as a preacher of Krishna consciousness. Sridhar said, in reality, both the preachers and the non-preachers are dear to Krishna, who have pure love for Krishna. There may be the preaching sector, Goshtiyanandi, and the one who's not preaching, Vivektanandi or Bhajananandi, stays alone, solitary place. Two sectors amongst the devotees. From ultimate analysis, he said, they're both dear to Krishna. But from our point of view, relatively speaking, who's preaching will be more dear. Without that, then, what is our prospect? So speaking to the souls of this world, Krishna appropriately says, who's preaching the message of Bhagavad Gita, explaining it to the devotees, he's most dear to me. Now, what this means further, of course, is that who's preaching and has endeared himself in this way to Krishna, that external activity of preaching must have a corresponding internal manifestation. And if that is in place, then that preaching will have effect. It's not just theoretical knowledge of the scripture that makes one dear to Krishna and a preacher in the full sense of the term. Palabhacharya told Mahaprabhu, Krishna Shakti Vinay Nahi Pravartana. Without Krishna Shakti, no one can preach Krishna Namsan Kirtan effectively. So what is Krishna Shakti then? Shuddha Shatva Visheshatma Prema Suryangsu Samyabhak. Rupa Goswami has described what is this Krishna Shakti. The dawning of the rays of the sun of Prem is called Bhal Bhakti. And this means a manifestation of the Ladini Shakti, Sambit Shakti within the heart of the devotee. This is Krishna's embrace of the devotee. This means you're dear to me. He embraces him like this. He embraces him with his Swarup Shakti and then that devotee becomes really non-different than him because the Swarup Shakti is the Lord's own nature. There's no duality in a sense. Therefore, this even this Leela is of Krishna is called Advaigyantatva, non-dual reality. Because he embraces the jiva with his own nature, his own Swarup Shakti. This is Krishna expressing his love. And then through that devotee, who's enveloped in his Swarup Shakti, he expresses himself. Krishna expresses, that's what we call Leela. Krishna expresses his own joy through the medium of his devotee. Krishna is joyful. Ladini Shakti is in Krishna, but he manifests it externally as Radha to experience it. Just like sugar is sweet, but it cannot taste itself. So when this Swarup Shakti, this Ladini Shakti, Sambit Shakti, is manifested in the devotee, this means real devotee, this means dear to Krishna, that devotee can do effective preaching. And that dear to Krishna is a progression as I say, from Sakshadhari, Kintu Praboriya Priya Vatasya. Because what's more than being as good as God is to be the controller of God. And that is the position of the devotee. He takes that position. This is the very meaning of Krishna. Krishna is non different from the heart of those Brajbasis. Krishna is the absolute truth reciprocating in relation to the heart of the most surrendered souls the Brajbasis, inhabitants of Vrindavan, appearing as a cowherd or as a lover of the gopis, controlled by them. The cowherds would wrestle with Krishna and defeat him. They're, in a, in a sense, in a, in a superior position. So more than as good as God, it means to be dear to God in the full sense of the term. And then it means that the disciple, who is a very good student and practicing appropriately and so forth. And over time, then, vision will start to develop. And he will see that the Guru is representing Krishna in this way, in terms of a particular sentiment, a particular relationship, a particular aspect, flavor, taste of that Swarup Shakti. And as that is revealed, then, that devotee will follow that. 
follow in the wake of that and cultivate that. So representing a particular potency of God as a delegation of Radha's group or Vatsalya Bhakti or Sakirasa, as may be the case, and may show different things to different persons also relative to their own innate nature as it's manifesting. This is, means very advanced service to Sri Guru, not in a general sense, but very specific and focused. This is not to be artificially imitated or anything like that. It's a, a stage of, of realization. This is what Vishnu Chakritakar is implying in his verse when he says, Kintu Praborya Priyavatasya Vande Guru Sri Charanaravindam. And it's not that these things are entirely invisible. As I said in this article I wrote, that mercy is a tangible reality. When we hear from such a proper guru, the cause is present in the result. So we see doubts are cleared. New insight is coming. Change in our life is coming. We can understand we're receiving some mercy. I mean, Tarabhum Bhattacharya, he was very learned in the scripture. He was very smart, a great logician. He couldn't understand that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was God. His brother-in-law, Gopinath, could. And what did Gopinath say? Well, the reason you can't understand is because you haven't received the mercy of the Lord. And Tarabhum said, well, how do we know you have? He said, well, because one who can understand (laughs) the descent of the Lord has evidence that he's got the mercy. (laughs) Maybe a little circular, but... (laughs) But anyway, Sarabhama was uh, much benefited by the enthusiasm of Gopinath. And it was on account of that that ultimately he became a devotee. Mahaprabhu built upon the Sukriti created by Gopinath in the heart of Sarabhama to give him Shraddha. So this mercy is not something to just dismiss. It's a real thing. As I said, Kurunayaha Purana Guhyam. The secret of the Purana was spoken, revealed to Sutta Goswami by Shukadeva out of what? Karunayaha, compassion, mercy. So what is the implication of that? It means that Sukadeva had nothing to gain. He had no ambition. Simply out of compassion. That's why he spoke. It's not that he was motivated to get some money or a livelihood by speaking the Bhagavatam. Out of compassion. I told the story of Gokishordas Babaji Marj, the famous professional reciter of the Bhagwat, decided to set up his camp near Babaji Marj's residence, thinking that Babaji Marj likes Bhagwatam. Everyone knows he's a Siddha Purusha, so he'll come and listen to my Bhagwat, and then I'll be able to say, even Gorkishore comes to my Bhagwat discourse. But Babaji Marj didn't attend. In fact, afterwards, he asked his assistant to clean that area. His assistant said, Babaji Marsh, how can I clean the area? The Bhagwat has been spoken there. He said, you heard the Bhagwat? I only heard rupee, rupee, rupee. Bhaktisiddham Sarasthi Thakur made a diorama, theistic diorama, number of them. And one of them was a Brahmin holding the Bhagavatam, giving a discourse, and behind him was a thin veil. And behind that thin veil was his wife and children, the implication being, he's speaking Bhagavatam externally, but if you look beneath the surface, you'll find his motive is just to maintain his family. He's a professional, professional Bhagavatam reciter. And there are professional kirtaniers, professional priests. That we're not interested in that. He made another diorama of a, of a Brahmin using the Shalagram Shila as a nutcracker saying, you are worshipping the Shalagram, but all you really want to do is feed your belly by such worship. And how he feels when you're offering those flowers and mantras and everything, because he knows your heart, like you're using him as a nutcracker only, just to fill your belly. Oh, there was an uproar. This was the kind of revolutionary preaching he was doing. The smarter Brahmins, they took him to court over it. And ultimately they said, well, Gaudiya Vaishnavas also do that. He said, all right, well, I'll put Gaudiya Tilak on the diorama. I agree. He was not shy to critique his own tradition. So a pure heart is required. No ambition. Out of love, it means. Out of an overflowing, this Bhagavatam should be spoken. Sukadeva Goswami was like that. And when we hear from that kind of a person, some change will be affected in our lives. That is the effect. 
the change and the cause. Where is the cause? The cause is in the heart of the devotee who's speaking that message of Bhagavatam without any ambition to gain anything from it, out of giving. So this spiritual standing, that is real standing, standing in reality, then there are some symptoms by which we can detect it. We should be learned. We need to be, to find out. It's a good idea. We recommend. There are symptoms of the, as I've cited in this article, in which the dawning of Bhava Bhakti is manifesting. Chantir, Avyartakalatvam, Viraktir, Manasunyata, Ashabandha, Samutkanta, Name Sadaruchi, and Tadgunakye, Pritistad, Vasatistale. These are nine symptoms. Chantir means, actually, it means forbearance. Prabhupada has also said forgiveness, but either way, but forbearance is a little different than forgiveness. The example given in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu is more in relation to forbearance. What is the example? Prikshit Maharaj, you heard your curse to die in seven days. Though so he didn't try to fight it, he just he took it and he went to the bank of the Ganges and heard Sriman Bhagavatam. Forbearance, avyartakalatram, never wasting any time. Always eager to use it for every minute, never feeling that the time has been spent well enough to the service of Krishna. Virakti, detached, like Bharat Maharaj, gave up his whole kingdom. He had something to give up, <laughs> something valuable. He left it behind. Virakti, Manasunyata means egoless, not in pursuit of false prestige. Like Bhagirat Maharaj, example is given. He begged from his own enemies for Krishna's seva after giving up his kingdom. He went to low-class people, although he was a king previously. Ashabandha, Ashabandha means hope. Hope beyond hope. It means having no hope in my prospect based on my qualifications, but hope nonetheless because of a sense of Krishna's being merciful. Strong sense of that. And carrying on in this way. Samutkanta, eagerness, Krishna consciousness is always eager and uh, Namagane Sadaruchi. The, the taste for chanting Krishna Nam, Tadgunakye. He likes to describe the qualities of Krishna and Pritis Tad Vasatistala. He liked to live in a place like this, where is the temple of Krishna or in the Dham of Krishna, where it's always conducive for remembering about him, all these kind of things. So we should be familiar with the. Uh, all these scriptural statements and select a good, competent guide to take us across the ocean of material suffering and introduce us to the Lord of our lives. Sri Guru Vastakam Ki Jai, Sri Vishwana Chakvati Thakur Ki Jai, Sri Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada Ki Jai, Bhakti Raksaksida Dev Goswami Maharaj Ki Jai, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur Prabhupada Ki Jai, श्री भक्ति विनोद परिवार की जाए गोर भक्त बिंद की जाए को प्रेमानंदी हरि हरि बोल